Hello everyone. Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast where we explore emerging ideas in science, policy, economics and technology. My name is Gil Eppen. This is designed to be an unstructured conversation with leading academics and experts without preparation and a set agenda. The primary goal is exploration, especially at the intersection of domains where valuable new ideas originate. This is an apolitical discussion based on data with freedom to speculate about the future. My guest today is Professor Amy Osborn, who is Assistant Professor of Computer and Bioengineering at the University of Washington. She works at the intersection of engineering and neuroscience, building brain-machine interfaces to restore and rehabilitate motor function after injury. The main emphasis of her work is building interfaces that can adapt alongside the brain to shape brain plasticity. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Um, so, so I want to start with um, one of your earlier papers uh, from 2014. Closed loop decoder adaptation shapes neuroplasticity and skillful neuroprosthetic control. Um, so you say neuroplasticity may play a critical role in developing robust, naturally controlled neuroprosthesis. This learning, however, is sensitive to system changes, such as the neural activity used for control. So before we get into the details, Amy, um, this is a little bit science fiction <laughs> in some sense. Uh, and so, so could we um, sort of set the context for what exactly is a brain-machine interface? What does it look like? What does it do? Yeah, so brain-machine interfaces are, I like to think of them as kind of changing how our nervous systems are interacting with the external world. So we can use recording technologies, for instance, to extract information from the brain and then use that to change things in the world um, through sort of adding basically an information pathway, right, that didn't exist previously. And so... I work on motor brain-machine interfaces, where the idea is that we can record activity from the brain and then use it to control movements. Um, so, for instance, controlling a computer cursor on a screen or a robotic limb. And so I, I have seen, um, taking information out of the brain, I have seen some things where you can sort of look at the intent uh, of the brain and then um, send that to some sort of a robotic uh, machinery to actually make it work, right? Yeah, yeah. and so traditionally, um, brain-machine interface approaches have sort of, have really kind of thought about it um, from that perspective of what I, what I think of as kind of just a, a decoding perspective, right? That if we understand how the brain is representing movements, we can then build algorithms to interpret neural activity, right? And understand that this pattern of neural activity means that you want to reach out and grab a cup, for instance. And then we just need to 
build the right machine learning algorithms to you know send that command to the robot, for instance. Um, but the part of the work in the paper that you were just referring to focuses on is the fact that it's actually a little bit more complicated than that in a brain machine interface because um, that piece of just sending the command to the robot is sort of a small part of what's actually happening when you're using a device. So you send the command to the robot and it moves, but you see what happens in real time and you are using that information to update your plans about, and the next command that you send to the robot might be a little bit different because you want to slightly correct an error, for instance. And so your brain is what we call in closed loop with the device. So there's sort of an interaction between your brain and the algorithm. And that's kind of a lot of what um, my lab and work focuses on, is kind of understanding how those interactions work and how we can optimize those interactions. And can we actually use that learning and flexibility in the brain as an engineering tool, right, to actually improve these devices. Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, if it is sort of a unidirectional, the brain makes an intention, the robot moves, and if that's the end of it, that, that's one thing. But actually what's going to happen is there is sort of a sequential set of things, right? So there is some feedback going back into the brain uh, perhaps the brain is thinking that didn't quite work out as I thought. <laughs> Let me just adjust it a bit. As the next iteration, it has done a little better and so on, right? So that that that's the closed loop that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, um, so the decoder adaptation to shape neuroplasticity. Um, now, so, so neuroplasticity, we use neuroplasticity, you know, sort of in the context of the brain can learn things. Um, is this the same context here when you say neuroplasticity? Yeah, yeah. so we're basically um, in, in the context of, you know, a brain machine interface, kind of the main way that we're thinking about plasticity is, um, is that the brain may have one strategy or you know relationship between patterns of neural activity and movement when you're controlling your own arm for instance but that may change when you're controlling an in a brain machine interface right and it may change in particular because the device is not quite the same as your arm. And so we have these errors that we were just talking about, right? That you send the command to the robot, it's not quite right, so you're gonna fix it. And the brain uses those errors to sort of update how it's controlling the interface. Um, and so is this uh, this sort of uh, the closed loop behavior, is that a learnable thing? In other words, um, if the brain does it over and over again, it, it gets better and better at that, right? Just like any other activity, I would think. Yes, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and that's sort of one of the really interesting um, observations that kind of motivated some of uh, my studies is that 
as you practice a brain machine interface, you sort of learn it much like you would learn any other motor skill, like learning to play tennis or badminton, where you know you practice one day, you get a little bit better on that day, you can come back the next day and you don't start back at square one. You sort of pick up where you left off and you continue to improve over time and you sort of learn this skill. Um, and so there's a lot of work showing that the same phenomenon happens in a brain machine interface, but it's very sensitive to sort of the details of the algorithm. So if we're if we change that algorithm every day, it would be sort of like me giving you a slightly different tennis racket every day, right? And it's going to disrupt your ability to kind of master and refine your tennis game. And so with the, in the context of a brain machine interface, we now have these challenges where um, we want to keep the interface and the algorithm sort of as stable as possible so that we can help it could potentially help the brain learn, but that's technically very difficult to do because if we're trying to make measurements from the brain, it's often difficult to record the exact same neurons, right? And make the exact same measurements from the brain each day. Um, and so this is what kind of motivates the, a lot of the approaches that we do where we're trying to combine machine learning that can adapt and change but then also to deal with sort of these technical, you know, practical limitations of the brain machine interface while still also allowing the brain to learn. And so that's um, sort of what we call co-adaptation. And the interesting thing this, uh, is that it creates this actually very complicated system, a two learner system, where you now have a machine learning algorithm trying to learn what the brain is doing. Where you have the brain trying to learn what the algorithm is doing at the same time. Um, and so that this particular paper sort of centers on this question of, you know, can we actually combine these two things to work together in a synergistic way? Or will it be that we, you know, create this moving target and the brain never really figures out and learns that skill because we're changing things in our algorithm? Um, and so the, the kind of key finding of the paper is that it is actually possible to find kind of these create synergistic learning between the machine learning algorithm and, and the brain. Yeah, so if you use machine learning, in some sense, you are you are uh, making the the machine more adaptable mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, right? So it, it will be more robust um, as errors come in. It can it can learn. Humans also tend to experiment, <laughs> right? So if I, if I go out to start playing tennis, you know, the next day I'm going to play it slightly differently, just just for the sake of it, right? And so there's those types of um, random errors in the data too, right? So that makes it a really interesting problem. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that um, is really interesting thinking about this sort of exploitation versus exploration, right? That's really common in, in learning and seems to be really a key part of what our brains do very well is kind of balancing those two, two things. Um, so one of our, the, you know, 
hopes that we have with some of these, you know, this idea of combining machine learning and brain learning together is that basically, could you get the, the benefits of both types of learning, right? Because machine learning is very powerful, right? We know that, um, and it continues to get more and more powerful all the time as we these technologies advance, but it also has lots of limits and it's not yet at the point of the incredible flexibility, you know, of our, our brains. And so the, you know, the theory behind, you know, motivating kind of this goal of combining these two learners and making this slightly more complicated system is that we could make, could we actually get kind of the best of both worlds, right? And kind of balance the pros and cons of each kind of, of learning. The, the algorithms in the interface, ultimately, uh, I would imagine they're not generalizable, right? In other words, can I take the interface from human X and, uh, and attach it to human Y and, and have some effects? Yeah, they, are, they are not generalizable yet. Um, there are definitely uh, folks very interested in trying to understand how to do that. Um, but right now they are customized to each individual person. Um, and that's actually some of where the adaptive algorithms like what we're using in that paper are very powerful is that what we can do with adaptive machine learning is um, take, basically we can start with no good guess of like the mapping between neural activity and desired movement for a given person. We can just start with completely random parameters. And then what we do, this is a, it's a supervised technique, but so we look at the mistakes. So we start that interface, the cursor is just kind of moving wildly. Um, and then we look at the mistakes. So we give you a target to try to hit. And then we say, okay, here's your target, but your cursor is going off in the wrong direction. Let me use that to update my algorithm. And if you do that sort of in real time, as someone is using the interface, you can quickly recalibrate basically the, the algorithm. Um, and this is, become a really common approach in part because it's it's relatively data it's relatively quick so we can do this on the order of you know maybe a five minute ten minute calibration session for a given user and that allows us to do this customization right and deal with the fact that we don't have good initial guesses in many cases for for, for people so I'm wondering, Amy, so um, let's say the objective was to move the cursor to the top right corner uh, of the screen. And I say attempt to do that. I see the cursor going to the top left corner. Now, in this adaptable algorithm, it can now, you know, sort of look at that and say what this person is really trying to do is this. And hence, I'm going to put an error, some sort of an error term in there. Not, there's not necessarily an error term, but some kind of an adjustment in there, right? But it might also reinforce that behavior because you, you're going to get, you're going to get what you look for, even though what what you're trying to do is not <laughs> what what you actually got. Yeah, 
that's exactly right. So one of the limitations of these approaches is sort of this, you know, that it's it's a supervised algorithm. So it involves us making assumptions about what you were trying to do. So that does then bias our solutions, right, towards these assumptions. Um, so there's some really interesting directions for, and I should also say that this becomes even more challenging as we start thinking about trying to build more complicated interfaces. So right now, these approaches are very, very good at building brain-machine interfaces for controlling simple things, like moving a cursor on a computer screen. That's two-dimensional. Our movements, just our hand plus our arm is 27-dimensional in terms of the different ways that we move our hands. And so thinking about how to scale up these approaches um, to really complex movements is to some extent an open question. It has been done, but it's um, it's difficult. Um, so that's one direction that's interesting. The other is thinking about how we can move this towards unsupervised, right? So rather than me assuming what you're trying to do, you know, can I not need that error signal in some way? Um, or could I get that error signal actually from your brain? <laughs> so there are some interesting ideas where we know that our brains represent errors that we make in movements. Um, and could we actually use your neural activity to see, oh, you, you meant to do this, but you actually did that, right? And then we could use that signal to update our algorithms. Um, and those are some examples of, you know, directions in some of these machine learning approaches that are potentially really interesting. Yeah, the generalizability would be really interesting if we can get there. I was wondering, there could be some sort of an unsupervised technique on top of the machine uh, machine learning algorithm. So suppose I have five different people doing an activity. Um, clearly, they are customized to those five people, but I suspect there are patterns in, in those algorithms that could be some foundational generalizability um, in the future, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's some really interesting recent work that is kind of highlighting some of these commonalities, right? Um, where there does seem to be, well, you know, each individual pattern of neural activity, the individual neurons, um, you know, are kind of like snowflake patterns, it's going to be different for, for each person. But the underlying common dynamics of kind of how those neurons, the patterns that we see are often similar across people. And so that is potentially one strategy for thinking about, you know, how we could get towards these like generalized interfaces. Yeah, maybe in, uh, in 10 years, uh, we can just go to Best Buy, pick up an interface, and I can sit in the, you know, uh, sit outside and uh, just play basketball. <laughs> Might be an easier way to exercise. Uh, they, they, I, I have seen something that just thinking about exercising has uh, similar beneficial effects of exercising. Um, I haven't really seen the data, but uh, that, that, that could be a direction, Amy. <laughs> Nobody wants to exercise. 
I have not thought about that application, but that's an interesting point. Yeah. So, so I want to go to one of your more um, recent papers. So parsing learning in networks using brain-machine interfaces. So BMI's uh, brain-machine interfaces define new ways to interact with our environment and hold great promise for clinical therapies. Uh, motor BMIs, for instance, uh, reroute neural activity to control improvements of a new effector and could restore movement to people with paralysis. And increasing experience shows that interfacing with the brain inevitably changes the brain. That's really interesting. So, um, so the machine could sort of force a rerouting in the brain, a beneficial rerouting to, to pick up uh, motor activity. So what is, what is, what is reason that's happening? Um, so uh, the, I guess the main kind of idea behind that particular paper, um, that review article, is really kind of centering on um, the basically highlighting this plasticity, right, that we were talking about that happens in brain machine interfaces. Um, and then and then highlighting the fact that this actually is really useful as a tool for studying kind of just at the basic neuroscience level, right? Kind of how um, the how that plasticity is is potentially happening. Um, and so there in that in that particular space, there's been some really interesting studies um, that sort of you know use the basically use the artificiality right of this kind of rerouting of information that happens in a brain machine interface um, to to gain some insights into kind of how these brain networks are are working. Um, yeah. yeah, so um, in some sense, you could use the machine to, I don't know if it's the right way to think about it, Amy, machine to exercise the brain um, in the sense that, you know, if if we can figure out where activity needs to be, I don't know, I don't know if we are anywhere there right now, but if that is predictable, then you can have an algorithm that that sort of reinforces that area or something along those lines, right? Is that is that possible? Yeah, yeah so that's um, a really interesting direction for you know these principles, right, of of plasticity in brain machine interfaces. And one direction um, that's particularly that I'm particularly interested in is thinking about can we use these for rehabilitation, for instance? So right now people are mostly focusing on um, restoring function, right? So if you are, are paralyzed, can I give you a new robotic limb or can I reanimate your limb? Um, but it would be a device that would stay with you forever. You would always you know, use that brain machine interface. But if we could sort of exactly like you said, reroute, you know, and retrain the brain to generate new patterns of activity, um, then we could use the device as sort of a temporary solution, right? And eventually kind of bypass an injury that you had like a stroke to um, then we just sort of restore your own natural movements. 
Um, and so BMIs have been used for that purpose. Um, and there's some promising results suggesting that it could work. Um, they've mostly been done with uh, non-invasive measurements. So for instance, uh, you know, a hat that you put on with a bunch of sensors called EEG or electrocorticography. Um, Sorry, electroencephalography. There's a lot of different kinds of uh, neural measurements, but um, the uh, and there, um, one of the biggest challenges is that the technique seems to only work for a limited subset of people. Um, so it might be very beneficial and improve motor function for one individual, but then it doesn't work as reliably for for another. Um, and my, I think there's a lot of open questions as to exactly why, um, but I think, you know, one interesting direction is to think about, well, so my, my theory is that one of the reasons that it doesn't necessarily work reliably for everyone is that we're not, we're not yet able to really kind of do what you were proposing, like know where information should be and guide the brain <laughs> to that target. Hmm. And so could we think about using these adaptive machine learning algorithms, for instance, to actually you know, guide the brain in some directed way? Right now we're kind of letting the brain learn and it finds some solution maybe, um, but could we actually use machine learning um, to, you know, guide and shape this plasticity in kind of an active way? And then that would potentially be really powerful for improving some of these rehabilitation applications. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds to me that machine learning has a lot of scope there, right? So um, brains are obviously not standardizable, but there are some commonalities. So the interface could have some starting heuristics, algorithms, intelligence uh, that, you know, uh, given a pattern, it could predict uh, what might be sort of the next step it could take, right? And then uh, once it has some basic stuff, it can learn from that and go from there, possibly. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's um, definitely a, a direction that we're kind of generally very interested in and actually connects a little bit with, I think, another paper that you were, we we're going to discuss later, but that um, thinking about machine learning algorithms that are not just trying to, you know, predict your movements, but they're also trying to predict where are, where is your neural activity? activity going, right? What are you learning? And how, where are you going to be, you know, at some future time point? Um, and so that's a really, a very open direction, frankly, and a new area of research for us, but one that I'm really excited about. Yeah, that's really exciting. So let's talk about that. So that's a recent paper, uh, a game theoretic model for co-adaptive brain machine interface. Um, so, so game theory, um, obviously, um, there's a lot of work in economics. Um, and so this is sort of a, a pair, <laughs> one like human, the other machine, each trying to sort of anticipate the next move um, of the other. And then I guess uh, making appropriate decisions, right? And, uh, and actions. Um, and so is there a specific context? I, I don't think I have the details of the paper in front of me, but 
is there a specific example that you've been trying to do here? Yeah, so this model, um, so this is early work that's a collaboration um, with a, a colleague of mine here at University of Washington, Sam Burden. Um, he does a lot of work on game theory and he's um, applied it in part thinking about how humans and robots interact. And so we're kind of trying to take the where the goal is similar to brain machine interfaces is can they interact in a synergistic way, right? You have a machine learning agent within a robot, but you also, it needs to work together with humans in a smart way. Um, and so that has so many parallels with what we're doing in these brain machine interface systems, right? Because we have a user that's dynamically interacting with these machine learning agents. And so we started talking and, you know, saw lots of interesting parallels. Um, so that paper is a, you know, just really initial, very simple model. Um, so we're taking, you know, existing, basically trying to model what's happening in the brain machine interface experiments that we're doing in my lab. And so we have simple, uh, relatively simple machine learning algorithms or brain machine interface algorithm that's just taking neural activity and mapping it to the position of a cursor on a computer screen. And that is some simple linear relationship. We then say that the brain has its own parallel linear model of, if you tell me to reach to this target, this is the pattern of neural activity I should generate, right? And so now with these two, the encoder in the brain and the decoder in the machine learning algorithm, the question becomes, how are these two things going to adapt over time when we put them into interacting with each other? And so the model creates, we define cost functions, which are basically say how, how these two systems are going to change over time. And so we say that the brain is obviously trying to minimize its error. We're trying to do the task correctly. <laughs> um, but we also care, we say that the brain also cares about minimizing its energy, basically. So it wants to keep like firing rate very low. We don't want to generate huge patterns of neural activity to, to solve the task. And then on the decoder side, we say that it also cares about minimizing the, the task error, right? And traditional brain-machine interface approaches where you're just thinking about the decoder as a machine learning agent, all it would do is try to perfectly match the brain. And so it would only care about kind of task error. But we give the decoder additional priorities. So it's an agent, you know, that is making decisions on its own, um, where, you know, it maybe also doesn't want to bend over backwards to meet the user, you know, it doesn't want to move that far. And so this is just one example sort of toy model. But what it does, because we're sort of using this like language and mathematical framing of game theory, it kind of opens new ways both to analyze, you know, how are these two agents going to move together? So if the decoder starts here and the brain starts here, where will they end up? Will they actually, you know, reach some common agreement about what the right solution is? Or will they like circle each other and kind of never find a stable point? Um, and then also, uh, you know, how could we optimize that, right? So that they work well together. 
Um, and so that's sort of the, the motivation of these game theory approaches is, you know, it, it starts creating a framework for thinking about this like active shaping, right? So a machine learning agent that kind of knows something about where the brain's gonna move and then can, can update accordingly to get the brain to where it wants to go. Right, yeah. So, so it's an optimization problem uh, for both. Um, so there's a brain has an objective function that is potentially different from the objective function of the, the, the machine learning agent. Um, and both are sort of trying to second guess the other, so to speak. Uh, and, and so if the objective function is sort of decreasing or sort of minimizing, um, minimizing activity, uh, maybe minimizing energy use or something like that, right? So if the, if the machine can anticipate a task in which the human is pretty good, so it doesn't really necessarily have to do anything, it shouldn't do anything. A uh, human does that. And if it predicts that the human is not going to do that properly, then it can step in and do something. Something along those lines? Yeah, yeah, something in that vein, yeah. And it provides um, a, yeah, it provides kind of a more principled way of thinking about that trade-off, right, between the brain and the, and the decoding algorithm. Um, and the other, the, the caveat and thing that I think is sort of an interesting direction from these models is that, you know, to, to really optimize this system, we actually have to understand what the, what the brain is, basically how the brain is learning and how the brain is making decisions, right? So we have to define this cost function of, you know, what are the, the ways in which the brain is up and so in our models, we've you know, specified something, we made some guess, and we're now working with existing data that we have to see kind of how reasonable are these guesses. But ultimately we don't know that cost function, right? And it may be different for different people, right? Going back to this theme of you know, generalizing across people. Um, some people may be more sensitive and really wanna keep that energy cost low other people may be more willing to expend energy, right? Um, and so there's some potentially interesting new directions where we could think about combining game theory with machine learning approaches where maybe we don't have to have this sort of perfect specification of the user's cost functions. Could we actually just look at the patterns of how they're moving over time and build, you know, a model of how their um, of their their likely decisions just based on data alone, right? Yeah. Um, and so those are, uh, I think, some you know, definitely far out in the future, but really interesting directions that I think this could go. Yeah, I mean, it's really so. There's also sort of a personality question. So one could define you know, sort of the machine learning algorithm will have a personality ultimately. Uh, and there is a personality for the, the combined entity, right? Because once both of the entities uh, have a really good understanding of the other, uh, I would imagine they, they are creating sort of a combined personality so that the combined objective function <laughs> could be optimized, I would think, right, over time. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the big strengths of, I think, these thinking about this as a, as a game is that it allows us to reason about that the, the solution, the outcome of the game, right, the system um, as a whole, as opposed to just thinking about each individual player, right, within, within the game. Yeah, I, I was, uh, you know, thinking about, so suppose there is a human who has some difficulty walking, and he he does well, I'm just making this up, uh, when he puts the right foot forward, and less though when he puts the left foot forward. Um, you know, something along those lines, and the and the algorithm can then then learn that, anticipate what's going to happen, and step in, and and optimize um, the the walk, right? In some sense. Yeah. So I think the um, and the other thing to direct goal, I think, for a lot of the things we're thinking about is could the algorithm also adapt in some way to actually make the user better able to make you know movements with the left leg for instance and so um, that that definitely is a, a far-reaching kind of ambitious goal but that's kind of the the direction that we're thinking is you know can we build these interfaces not, not just to sort of assist when needed which is obviously potentially very useful but to actually you know, retrain and sort of use that plasticity and guide the user so that they ultimately don't need that assistance over time. Uh, it's also a question of the cost function. So everything sort of goes back to what subjective function of the of the machine, right? Um, so, so suppose the machine has some initial conditions, initial objective function, and the tactical goal is to walk. Maybe the strategic goal is to let the person walk better. <laughs> I'm just making this up, right? And so it has to sort of combine, you know, sort of the immediate gratification question and then what is sort of the strategic uh, requirements are, right? Um, you could you could sort of I'm I'm wondering if you go in and change the objective function over time. That that might be less efficient, right? There has to be machine learning techniques that sort of some sort of reinforcement learning, some sort of you know uh, optimization technique that might be useful. Yeah, yeah, that's a an interesting direction. Definitely something um, that we have not thought about too carefully yet. But I definitely think that um, for having Having systems where the the objective functions themselves are evolving over time, right, is a um, definitely an, an interesting direction. Right now, we're really it's already hard enough, I guess, to like with a with a system that with a game that has defined rules. Just even understanding, you know, if the brain has this goal and the decoder has this goal where will they ultimately end up is, is already a sufficiently difficult challenge, but I think you're definitely right. Um, and, and it's also very um, relevant ultimately because we know that in um, natural motor learning, right? Kind of going back to your, the previous things about like explore versus exploit, right? We have different strategies and our objectives 
in learning may evolve over time as well. Um, so I think that will be definitely a direction that we're going to have to to think about carefully. How about more than two players? Have you have you done, have you done that? Uh, we have not done that yet, but I think it's a really um, interesting direction. The um, collaborations, um, so uh, Sam Burden, my collaborator, has other projects that are thinking about kind of multi-agent systems, and a lot of the approaches that we're using in the brain-machine interface context do generalize to multiplayer, um, but we're, I have trouble thinking about what I'm sure there will be eventual very sci-fi applications of neural neural interfaces with multiple players, um, but I haven't I haven't quite grasped what that would be <laughs> quite yet. I mean, there's scope for specialization, right? I was thinking about you know deep learning uh, neural networks, um, where you know certain parts of the the the, the deep learning network um, specializes in. Uh, understanding or um, or seeing or whatever, right? Uh, of of something. So, one could imagine if I have multiple multiple agents along with me, um, maybe different agents will specialize in certain aspects of that objective and get better and better at that. Uh, that requires obviously a lot of coordination and <laughs> a lot of a lot of data, but yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I think it could sort of thinking a little bit more about, you know, how that could apply to like a motor brain machine interface. Um, there are a lot of strategies right now where, for instance, if we want to control a robot, you know, that has an arm plus a hand, there are sort of slightly separate algorithms for getting your hand to a particular location and then another one for opening and closing the hand for instance. And so whether or not those algorithms should be one agent, right, that kind of learns together versus maybe they should actually be separate agents and they have their own separate objectives and adaptation. Um, that's definitely, that's a really interesting question. And I think, you know, in the context of thinking about restoring very complex functions, right? It may actually make a lot of sense to think about those as sort of independent modules that are dedicated to, to particular aspects of, of movement, for instance. Yeah, so from a practical perspective, I guess the, the unsupervised context is really interesting, right? So suppose I can get, take a plain vanilla um, network and I start wearing it and the network learns over time makes me more efficient. Um, it, it doesn't have to be just motor uh, functions, right? It could also be how I study, how I think. Uh, all sorts of things could happen, right? I mean, I could have machines that let me conceptualize better, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there are all sorts of really interesting potential applications for these sorts of engineered plasticity, right? Sort of the goal of like training the brain or sort of optimizing um, any neural behavior, right? Through a combination of brain plasticity and machine learning. Um, and I know of, I, I don't myself do that work, but I do know of people that are very interested, for instance, in 
for like a, a smart heads up display, for instance, where can I record your neural activity and based on a machine learning algorithm, decide what is the best time to show you information so that you can maximally process it, right? Um, and so those are, I think there's all sorts of potential applications for these basic ideas, right? Of how do we have machine learning algorithms that are working together with us in kind of a smart way to optimize our ability to do all kinds of different tasks. Yeah, all sorts of different training tasks. You know, I'm thinking music, for example, um, you know, sport. Um, yeah. And so the, the, it has some sort of uh, ethical and regulatory complications here, right? I mean, at some point you could see people walking around with all sorts of machines doing all sorts of things. Is it the human doing it or is it the machine doing it? So, so what is the, what are sort of the ethical and regulatory aspects around this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's these kinds of areas, especially these sort of closed loop interfaces, combining machine learning, you know, with how we are, with the devices, right, that we're building for people raise huge ethical considerations that we really have to think about. Um, and one of the things that I'm particularly excited about being at the University of Washington is that we actually have quite a large neuroethics group. Um, and there's our Center for Neural Technology actually sort of has great programs to kind of put the ethicists, you know, in the rooms as scientists are, are having these discussions um, because we, we need to be really proactive, right? And kind of thinking about some of these issues. Um, so one example of kind of an important question becomes this issue of, of agency, right? Sort of, is it me or is it the machine, right? And at what point is it actually the, are the two kind of difficult to, to separate? Um, and so there's some really nice work that's been done in the context of deep brain stimulation, where people are building a lot of these kind of closed loop algorithms where you, you know, I don't adjust my stimulation parameters, but an algorithm does for me to optimize uh, control of, of tremors um, for people with Parkinson's. And so there's some really nice work where collaborating with patients, finding out what they want, what their concerns and considerations are, um, you know, what do they want and need in an algorithm? And one of the key things, um, that they found in particular is that people really wanted the ability to just, you know, quickly intervene and like turn things off. <laughs> um, sort of simple, relatively simple mechanisms of providing additional agency, right, to the user um, become really important. And so I think these are going to be, you know, very important considerations um, as we move forward. And it's going to be really important to talk with all of the stakeholders, right, in, in these spaces to really understand how to do this work in a, in a smart and, and ethical way. Yeah, I mean, it's quite scary how fast the field is developing, right? It doesn't seem like we have a lot of time. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, uh, legal, I can see this coming, uh, somebody committed a crime and then turns around and says, it's not me, it's my machine that, <laughs> that did the crime. And you know, how do you parse that out ultimately in the court system? So 
I, I have a nagging feeling, Amy, that we are a little bit behind on that legal and regulatory aspects of AI because the field is expanding quite rapidly. Yeah, I think, you know, this is definitely not my, my main area of expertise, but I, um, I think that it's, it's definitely something that should be an important focus and, you know, increasingly on, on, on the radar for sure. Um, yeah, I think that um, there's, there's a wide range of, you know, complex questions where, you know, the well, so I think the, the other piece that I'll just mention is that, you know, I agree that especially on the AI side, these technologies are advancing very quickly. But on the neural, you know, neural interface side, I do think that we're we're very far from being able to do some of the, you know, complex uh, ideas that we were were chatting about before of, you know enhancing your cognitive function with a, you know, advanced machine learning algorithm. You know, there's interesting kind of proof of concept demonstrations, but most of the research there is very focused on, for instance, you know, treating neural disorders and, um, and therapies, right? Um, but I think that, you know, on the neural side of these particular AI applications, I think, you know, hopefully we aren't too far <laughs> behind the ball on some of these things, but I, I think you're absolutely right to kind of raise that consideration. I, I hope that, you know, the legal and regulatory scholars are, are thinking about these questions. Yeah, the complication is that um, the policy makers don't really have the background to make policy. Right. Um, I don't know. This was just a few years ago. Somebody wondering what internet was um, in in the, in the Congress. So <laughs> I think uh, it it is uh, there is a sort of um, um, competence question in addition to process question. Um, but uh, that's for another uh, another podcast. Uh, <laughs> and so so in conclusion, I want to ask you. You're doing a lot of work in this area. Could you speculate, um, you know, if you look forward just at 10 years, um, specifically in this BMI arena, where do you think we will be? Uh, I'm thinking more sort of, you know, what sort of practical applications are most likely to come to market in this area and, uh, and where do you think the field will be in general in 10 years? Yeah, that's a good question. Um... It's funny because I feel like I've I've been asked that before, and every time I you know try to think about my answer, it changes a little bit because the field is is moving so quickly. Um, I think that uh, one of the most interesting developments that you know is happening in the neural engineering space is the increase in companies that are developing these advanced implants to actually make the kind of measurements that we need for these to become, you know, actual viable therapies. And so um, I think that, you know, within the next 10 years, I think that some of the things that are now somewhat commonplace in labs like mine, where we can, you know, quickly build these algorithms to let you control a computer cursor, I think will start to become 
you know, more accessible uh, therapies. Right now they're in clinical trials, but I think they'll start to kind of roll out um, to, to broader use. Um, I think a lot of that will focus on people with, you know, really extreme paralysis, for instance, where they have, um, they really need these kinds of therapies, for instance, to be able to type and communicate and so on. But I think those are really important first applications of these technologies. And I definitely see them, you know, coming on the on the horizon, which is really exciting. Yeah, just uh, very quickly, uh, I was also thinking this could be considered ultimately sort of an Internet of Things uh, type arrangement, right? Because if people are walking around with things, let's say, um, it is sort of an IoT. And so they, they could, the machines could start to communicate with each other, just like humans do, and could pick up information. This autonomous, um, you know, um, driving um, scenario uh, that cars are, you know, beginning to talk to each other to, to make it more, more optimum. Do you think we will go in that direction in the future? That's a really interesting question. I think that um, to me, I think the potential benefit of sort of these um, as we start rolling out these technologies, right, to having more people where you would then start thinking about having these networks of, of, of people using neural interfaces, I think the biggest benefits there are not necessarily going to be in this internet of things like connecting the devices so much as sort of the improvements and advances in the machine learning approaches. So machine learning benefits from big data, right? <laughs> and that's how Google, for instance, is so successful at, you know, giving us optimal search, search information is because they have tons of data on all sorts of different people. Neural engineering is still in a very data limited space, right? Because especially when we're thinking about these, you know, neural implants where you need a surgery to be able to make the measurements, you know, we don't have a lot of data from a lot of people. And so I think there's going to be some really interesting developments and directions, you know, thinking about sort of that economy of scale and the benefit fit, right, where we're just sort of going to see as people start to use these devices, we'll be able to use that data to even further improve, improve the devices. There's some safety and security applications here too, potentially, right? Um, so, you know, something bad is happening, human intuition is failing, but machines get data and it could, it could talk to each other to, to reduce the safety incident potentially, right? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think that um, there's, you know, in addition to the, you know, ethical considerations, there's all sorts of other safety questions. Um, so I'm, I'm in an electrical and computer engineering department, and we always talk about how neural um, engineering is sort of a, a vertical technology that hits all of the aspects of, you know, what traditional ECE research is. And one of those is, you know, security and infrastructure and, you know, understanding how to build these devices to be really robust. Um, and so potentially, like you're highlighting, I think having there may be some benefits to um, security that might come from this sort of, you know, internet and uh, connected devices. So yeah, that's a great point. 
Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Amy. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.